and welcome to episode 31 of That 60s Recording Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Um, and welcome to Tuesday and uh, the now weekly That 60s Recording Podcast. This is the second weekly episode I've done now, or third if you... Is it second? Yeah, second or third, depending on where you start counting. <laughs> um, and this week I'm continuing my conversation with Jack Cassidy from uh, Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna, um, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, just to let you know that this week's isolated drum stems that I'm sending out today, uh, the, the day that you hear this, if it's the Tuesday, which would be Tuesday the 8th of June, um, this week's stems are Ticket to Ride, can't believe I haven't got to Ticket to Ride yet at all. So this is Stems set number 49, um, and I've got a big one planned for 50, which I haven't actually recorded yet, but it's going to be a, a mammoth task, and hope you might even be able to guess what it is from that. Uh, from that. <laughs> so if you're interested in that, you can visit my website, allyouneediesdrums.com, and there's the full archive of all of the isolated drums I've, I've made up there, if you're interested to listen to any of those. You can also join my mailing list to make sure that you receive those weekly. And they'll come out every Tuesday, just like the podcast. Um, so that's that little bit of admin. Um, and I hope you're all doing really well, and I hope you're all enjoying this conversation. So we start off talking about Jack's musical influences and what he was listening to growing up. Very, um, well, maybe they are what you'd expect. I was going to say they're not what you expect, but well, anyway, I'll let you be the judge. And then uh, as we move through towards the end, he talks, it just gives some really sage advice. I mean, he's such a wise guy, um, a wise guy in the uh, sense that he is a wise guy, not a wise guy like they would be on The Sopranos. Um, anyway, I'm waffling. Let's get straight down to the episode. Here we go. Part two with Jack Cassidy. sort of music that you're referencing then is so uh it's just unusual for somebody so young to be listening to that music i mean i i'm, I'm interested to know so i i remember buying a john coltrane record when i was about 16 17 and i think it was a love supreme that i bought and i i it just blew my my mind completely i had a yeah it was a it was just crazy and i'm and I can remember not understanding it and then revisiting it a couple of years later and, and it began to not necessarily make sense to me, but I, it became <laughs> yeah. listenable to me. Yeah. What, what were you thinking about when you were listening to all this stuff? How were, you, how were you picturing how this music fit in in your head? Well, I was fortunate enough to see every one of these people many times in little jazz clubs. Mm. I watched, I, I parked my chair right in front of Charles Mingus, you know, wow. right in front of Eric Dolphy. You know, I saw the West Montgomery, the Montgomery Brothers, with where Mont Montgomery's playing bass, which was sacrilege then. I remember, uh, you know, Nat Hentoff, or one of those guys in Downbeat Magazine, you know, saying, you just can't have an electric bass guitar in jazz, you know, and all that. You know. And um, the M Montgomery Brothers, with West Montgomery and his brother, Monk, you know, see him in these little up upstairs clubs playing, you know. Uh, and I just parked myself in front of him. But, you know, the very next night, I might be down to Howard Theater seeing Ray Charles. You know. and, uh, and the very next night, I'd be in a country club seeing, you know, the, the Rockabilly band. Or, or I remember in the, in the late 50s, Yorm and I go down to Ray, Virginia to see the Carter family, Mother Maybell Carter and the whole Carter family and, and Johnny Cash. And, and uh, you know, there was the Harder Edge... Rockabilly guys, Gene Vincent, I saw a few times, you know, and uh, uh, you know the 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 variety of of music at different times was just truly astounding for me. But you know, my as I said earlier, my father was an influence in that in many ways. He loved music. Uh, he was an audiophile, so at you know, 10, 11 years old, he had built Heathkit amplifiers, hi-fi, and put turned the, the basement, which was just a basement, uh, with a furnace in it, you know, put knotty pine walls up in it and Nalgahide leather seating and, and turned it into, he had had his garage changer from England out there, you know, and 
and belonged to the American Jazz Society. So every month, the, uh, 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 an LP would come with a variety of music on it. So I was, at 10, 11 years old, I was listening to Bix Spider Beck, and I was listening to uh, Eddie Condon, and I was listening to, uh, uh, oh God, there's, there's so many, uh, all the New Orleans jazz guys. Mm. I, I, I tended to, my father liked the, some of the big band stuff, and I didn't like that too much. I liked the small combo stuff, the interplay of the musicians, you know. And so um, uh, I, uh, I learned how to listen then. But actually, there's another story involved with all that listening to the music. Uh, when I was three, and then again, much more seriously, when I was seven, I had a rheumatic fever, and they, you know, at that day, they didn't really know much to do with, with that as a heart disease, and they they basically would keep you very quiet and wanted, you know, couldn't play or couldn't run or any of that, you know. And my father, being a medical family, they 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 were very concerned about this. And so uh, my father's brother was a doctor, a physician, and he and my father was the dentist. They lived with a few blocks from each other. And these are the days my father's, the dental office was in the house and the physician's office was in their house up the street. In any case, I remember when I was three and a half or four being parked in front of the, what seemed like it was 90 stories tall, but it was an RCA Victrola. Uh, radio in Victrola, where the top lid came up, and you played your seventy-eight records, you know, that I couldn't reach, <laughs> and but I would listen, and the and the and the weekends to you know folk music concerts on Saturday and classical music on Sunday, you know, and that was a way for me to to deal with the fact that I, I couldn't be active, and then later on when I was seven, I got really sick with the uh, with, with the disease, uh, and um, I was parked out for six or eight months to the, well, I'll never forget, uh, the Christchild Farm for Children Hospital. In any case, with 40 girls on one side and a wall and with a little look-through for the nurses and 40 boys on the other side and a couple of uh, private rooms. Well, my, my father and his brother pulled some weight, so I got one of the private rooms that I shared with another kid. And I was out there for six or eight, I think six, eight months. Wow. But I was the experiment in, in a, um, a trial to use uh, a new wonder drug called penicillin that had <laughs> been used in the later part of the Korean War. Uh, and this was 1953, so they started to use it to, uh, to, to see its effect on heart disease. I was in one of those blind trials, and, and, and you know, I, my parents made sure I got the, I got the the side of yeah. the, uh, that had the uh, penicillin. It, it was, that was a, a rough deal back then. So in any case, it arrested the disease, and, and, and I didn't have permanent heart damage. And today I'm a workout fiend, of course. <laughs> I've got a gym sitting right over there. I just worked out before I saw you. Yeah. But in any case, uh, I used music. To you know, when other kids read, you know, other kids would read. I would listen. So I had my radio, and my father put, put had built me some headphones and all that. You know, very nice. crude and all that 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 he used. It was a ham radio days and all. And he got me some hi-fi headphones in the 50s, and I listened to music all the time, and that really got me into that world. I think so. By the time I, a few years later, when I discovered the guitar up in the attic. That, that I had been listening to a lot of music, and, and I enjoyed it. I started collecting r records at the same time about at 12, and I go down to Waxy Maxi's Quality Music Store. <laughs> what right next to the, yes, Waxy Maxi, the, the, he had a you know, pencil-thin mustache and, and, and slick back hair and the whole deal. But I go through the, the record bins, and there were 45s of Little Walter and Muddy Waters, and I'd break all, bring all these homes, you know. Uh, 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 and, uh, and some of them I've still got upstairs, with, and I had versions of 78s, you know. And, uh, uh, and, and I started collecting and listening to a lot of music. And then when I started playing, of course, then that really mushroomed everything out, you know. So I've still got all my, my first 
first albums out there, and we could do an album walkthrough sometime, you know. <laughs> but you know, I've got you know Bobby Blue Bland, BB King, and and uh, uh, all the early uh, rock and roll and rhythm and blues albums up there that that I listen to Amos Milburn and and all that kind of stuff, you know. It makes so much sense hearing you say all of that, listening through. Um, you know, listen back through to everything in preparation for this interview, and it just you can hear so many of those influences in 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 a lot of the stuff that you've done. Um, it, it it just makes a lot of sense. And <laughs> now that you've explained it like that, it's uh, it's really cool. There is a couple of um, specific things that I'd just like to ask you about. Um, so we're jumping around in the timeline here, sure. re- really, but. Um, I think and you know we can do more than one of these. Oh, I mean that would be amazing. Yeah, that okay, that way you don't have to feel like you can cram all this in and and uh, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm I'm sure people will have a lot of questions as a result of this. So it would be cool to do another. Yeah, that's not a bad idea actually. If uh, we do some today and then gather some questions and then I'll answer a specific. Yeah, question. that could be really cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. What's your memories of Woodstock and Altamont Speedway festivals? They were obviously well. Huge. They, have, they always put the two together, and I'm, unfortunately, that's journalist trying to make a bookend of of uh, life, you know. But uh, but my I've got plenty of memories of both of them, you know. I mean, <laughs> uh, Woodstock, of course, was was really the the example of. Uh, I remember to, it, 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 it might have been David Crosby I was talking to. Why we were all waiting on stage, you know? It all it rained, and we were supposed to go on the night before, and went on the next morning, and all that. And everybody hung out. There's no place else. It wasn't like today's events, you know. Basically, it was a flat wooden stage, and everybody hung out. So, <laughs> and then there was what three hundred thousand people in front of you. But uh, I think that was that was really the consummate event where we looked around and said, geez, there's, there's, there's 300,000 people up, or there's 300,000 of us out there, you know, because there was a certain amount of us versus them. I don't forget, if, if you had long hair, I couldn't get served in a restaurant. And so, uh, you know, it was, we were the aliens in a lot of part <laughs> of the, the land, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, the festival that you take so much for granted then, it was all so new. Nobody knew how it was going to work out, much less the fact nobody knew that everybody's going to trample down the fences and, and just invite themselves into a, what turned out to be a free festival. <laughs> and uh, so there was a, 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 you know, a fair amount of drama going on. At the same time, it worked out. And we thought, well, gee, if how, isn't this amazing? You You... I mean, yes, it was it was a big mess to clean up and and all of that, but but at the same time, I think it was a, a desire for for all these different musical entities to be together over a three day period and present. I think of it as a bookend to Monterey Pop Festival rather than Altamont, okay. which was just a, the the wrong way to do a festival. I'd rather talk about the fact that Monterey presented Ravi Shankar and Otis Redding and all these, uh, uh, a variety of music, a tremendous worldwide variety of music that had normally only been seen at the Monterey Jazz Festival, you know. And this was even something beyond the Monterey Pop Festival, was even something beyond, because you had people in the audience listening to, to Ravi Shankar in a way they would never... I mean, he's in front of him. He's playing. They're, they're mesmerized by this, and they're listening. They're really listening like you would at a jazz concert, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the listeners. So um, here you flip over to the East Coast, and you have this with with many of the, the acts playing that had now become more established in a couple of years since that, uh, uh, with a lot more variety on, on the stage. Um, uh, and you have uh, an atmosphere that that is just uh, phenomenal to be a part of and watch, and 
to it, it's kind of like an amoeba moving around like this. You know, we had trouble getting in there. Once we got in there, we stayed in there. And we, we, Yorm and I came in on our station wagon, you know, which was a Ford LTD station wagon, which was the mode of tra- transportation at the time, uh, <laughs> circa 1968. And uh, uh, and we found a, you know, a, you know, an access road in the farms. They were farms. This 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 wasn't built up for a festival, you know, and and so. Uh, some people were able to fly in with a helicopter, and some people would, you know, j- just work their way in, much less get out after it's over. <laughs> and I remember we had gigs, so, so finally when we finished that, we we, we moved on through our tour. Uh, but it was it was unusual for everybody, and, was, and I think it was a, an, an example of, gee, there's there's so many people that sort of think or subscribe to what we're trying to to show, and not just a lifestyle or something, but to show that there's that there was an alternative, alternate way of of life to a very rigid format. Don't forget, we all grew out of the fifties. Mm. You know, we were products of the of the forties and fifties. You know, in a, a much more clamped down, you know, rigid time. We had heard about. The Roaring Twenties, the late Twenties was a great open free time, so to speak, or the 1890s in Paris with the, with the art movement and music movement in the classical world, and everything had seemed to be tied down since the late Twenties and Thirties, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got a Second World War, and then you've got the uh, Korean War and a very rigid format of time, conservative format of time, and then... We came on the scene. Uh, uh, so the art opened up again, and the music opened up, and, and the, the movie making opened up, and you had different directors and a new batch of directors in making you know, uh, movies that, that, that were, were a lot more open and daring in, in their scope and, and, and subject matter. You know. the, um, this is the the complete antithesis of the the really in, the sort of intelligent uh, assessment of of the ninety sixes that you've just put across, but the I, the organisational freak in me wants to know what it was like playing on stage at eight o'clock in the morning, and did you sleep the oh, night absolutely. before? Of course not. Hey, listen, I'm twenty seven years old. I can stay up all night. <laughs> There might have been some enhancements, uh, but I can't remember right now. But, you know, I mean, we were all, you know, there was rain delays, things delays there. I mean, don't forget, you know, half the stuff I wasn't sure was grounded right, you know. I mean, there was a couple of cases of people getting fried when they touched their guitar. and, and yeah. No, people had, you know, guys had to. There's, wow. there's a couple of, I forgot his name. There, there's one singer had passed away because of that. So it was, uh, you know, there was... Caution there. Don't forget, there was this stage that was the great idea. I'm not sure uh, whose it was. Uh, maybe it was Monk. Uh, Monk's, you know, Chipmunk. And, but anyway, the stage, the great idea was it was a circular stage, like uh, in London, the Roundhouse. Oh, yes, yeah. And the locomotive goes in, turns around, goes back in the other direction. We played the Roundhouse. I love that place. Uh, in any case, um, the stage was circular, and it was on tracks and everything. And the idea was, one half, you know, put a little, you know, one half would be setting up the band, and you know, you can see the guys smoking. This is gonna be a great idea, man. <laughs> uh, and and it would just turn around, and there would be the next act stuff all set up, you know, and then they'd t- tear off all that. Yeah. Well. They put all the equipment on there, and it went like this, and never moved again. So that was it. <laughs> oh man! But the concept was there. I mean, yeah. Now they can do it. But, but I mean, they they built and sawed and hammered that stage together all for a few days beforehand. It was really a, a phenomenal amount of work, and all this talent came back. You know, let me let me mention too, in in that say 1965 in San Francisco part of the uniqueness of that we all felt was it's kind of like our older brothers went into the straight world so to speak and the younger brothers and some of the older brothers dropped out where 
you know, you had talent coming in to the so-called San Francisco scene that was out of the aerospace industry, and they had expertise of making composite material and working with with electronics, you know, working. That's that's how all the guys went into when we modified our instruments and put in electronics in them and tried to bring the fidelity up. There wasn't, there weren't any stage system, sound systems. They were PA systems. They all sounded like you were at the racetrack, <laughs> you know. And they started, you know, the 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 talent started to use nice big Macintosh amplifiers, three hundred watts, and stack them up. I got tons of pictures right here of, of me using them for my bass amplifiers, and then a Showman Fender Showman top for a preamp, and then we made our own cabinets. Uh, out of three-quarter-inch plywood with the heaviest things on earth. But the <laughs> idea was that, that, that they got supposedly better sound, and they started stacking those up. And, you know, you've seen the pictures, the Grateful Dead, the wall of sound and all that. But there, when we started working with more and more volume, the singers couldn't had difficulty because the, the, the sound systems for the, for the singer, for the sound reinforcement, wasn't up to, to par. So all that whole industry developed out of that scene. Uh, in the clothing world and in and, and, and fashion, people started, the audience, what was great was when we played, uh, uh, you know, played in Golden Gate Park and played uh, uh, Mount Tamalpais, one of the early festivals out there, uh, uh, you had people taking their fantasy and going into old, you know, old shops and finding granite glasses and things and suits and, and d different types of clothing. For some reason out in the West, a lot of bands identified with the, the old mid-1860s Wild West or whatever. In England, you know, it was the mods and rockers and all that and, and, and dressing up. Uh, uh, for us, it was it was much more unorganized. I mean, people would just start to kind of fashion and make their own clothes. For us on stage, we had a genie the tailor in San Francisco and genie the tailor here in Los Angeles. And and I used to get all, all the clothes you see me in from that period. I go down to Guatemala and shop and get bolts of material and hand it to them, or go into a fabric store and find just stuff I liked and. And and we'd make clothes, you know. But out in the audience, people have to start to have their own look. It wasn't just the people on the stage. So people were able to be creative and fill out some of their fantasies, you know, about a, a, a role fulfilling and the characters they would play. And as they started to be able to do some of that and make a living at it, you know, it was an, for an alternative way that besides being shuttled into a slot of corporate slot of a, a cog in a wheel, you know. Uh, and I think that's that's important to mention with, with all of that, uh, that for a period of, to, for a five or six or seven year period, had the sense of, of community as it expanded. Uh, and styles changed and things changed, you know, and, and then it dissipated. But but for a while, it was really a, a unique world in San Francisco and on um, uh, London as well. You know, it was a, a different, a, a, a different look the young people had. You know, and it, it wasn't just about fashion, so to speak. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah, I hear you. Much bigger than that. In in terms of sort of the. Well, it was a little more individual. It wasn't that it was bigger. It, it it was just you wanted to play a bigger part of your own image, you know. You wanted to uh, assimilate more of yourself out there. Yeah, it felt like you finally rather had, than had put a on something and be something. Mm -hmm. Later on, it was that. Yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, you go down to to Macy's and they had a polka dot hippie outfit. That they <laughs> yeah, outfit. You know, by the time seventies came. Did and then, of course, everybody started, you know, yeah, okay, I've had it. And, you know, <laughs> dissipate a bit, you know. Well, that's the way it, you know, it's, it's kind of like the same with uh, with areas and, and um, sort of gentrification where the creatives take yeah, over. Yeah, I mean, area. yeah, yeah. You know, you that little uh, 
that the closeness goes and 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 you know things things move and that's the way it should be i mean it's always going to be that way so yeah i i have to ask you about the um about hendrix and that kind of stuff that happened so the obviously you played on on voodoo child which was the um i think we've already talked about the 15 minute jam version of it that you mentioned it before yeah. and it got trimmed down to a, a, a releasable. <laughs> um, well, no, there was a, there was, it's really a different song, you know, it's, mm. a, you know, it's really a different song, you know, I mean, a future child's slight return you're referring to. Yes. Yeah. That's a different song. I mean, listen to it. It's a different song. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, that was, um, uh, but, um, I found Jimmy to be a very gracious guy, a very, uh, you know, I, I guess I identified easily with him because he was in that R&B scene, you know, before he was sort of reinvented out in London. And, and, and uh, when, I, when I first met him, you know, and he was at Monterey Pop Festival, but when he, st- when he started coming up to San Francisco and playing, Bill Graham, who owned the Fillmore Auditorium, was our manager at the time. And we rehearsed there all the time and played there many, you know, from we were one of the first bands to play there at the, the new Fillmore. And we weren't, shared many a bill with many, many different folks. And we shared a couple of with Jimi Hendrix as well. And I, I fell in right away with Jimmy, and particularly with, with uh, Mitch Mitchell. I just loved his, of course, all his jazz sensibilities in there. Yes, yeah. And I'll talk more about that in a second. But, and of course, Noel Redding. And and so, we had a rehearsal spot next door at a synagogue there, and and right next to Fillmore. And uh, and, and so, we, when we shared bills, you know, when when they had a chance, we jam jam a bunch of times, and just because we appreciate, you know. Good musicians want to meet other musicians, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like you were lined up along the wall in competition with the other bands, you know, <laughs> like 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 in DC, you know. Don't say anything, you know, and uh, and so we fell in with each other really easily, uh, uh, and a couple of years later, when we were in the Jefferson Airplane was in New York, I believe, to do the Dick Cavett show or one of those kind of shows right in New York City later on uh, uh, Jimmy was was recording in New York uh, and he had just taken over his session I believe his producer had been let go Chaz Chandler and he had started doing this himself uh, uh, and uh, Traffic had was on their first tour of the US I believe is correct playing a small under, half underground club uh, in New York called Steve Paul's Scene. So we finished our uh, taping of that TV show early, and it was allowed 11.30, so we heard that the traffic was over there. So in those days, Norm and I never traveled anywhere without our instruments. At all times, you carried it. You never know. So at that club, Steve Paul's Scene, we were listening to traffic, and, and Hendrix came in, and we had met each other, you know, and, and all, and we'd just go out to it, you know, we'd play jam together and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. He says, listen, I'm working on my album over here after the show. And he knew Steve Winwood and all those guys, traffic guys from, from the scene in London that he was part of. So a bunch of us went back over to the studio, and then by then it was around 2 in the morning or something, and we watched him work on some stuff, and maybe there was 15 of us there or something. Uh, most of it hang out in the, the studio while he w- did some overdub tracks or worked on some songs or went into the isolation booth and played around in there. <laughs> Not any music. And uh, and then along about close to daybreak in the morning, he said, listen, well, let's play blues. You know. So Steve Winwood was there, of course, and, and then Mitch, and they, they had a, a Fender Showman we tossed on the side, but put in, and I plugged into that, you know, and then we went over, he said, here are the blue, here's the changes right here, uh, like this, you know, and we went over a little bit, we just started to do a take, and he broke a string, and then we noodled around, and then we we did a whole take, the one that was released, I believe, 
And then, Lord, it was about 7.30 in the morning. Uh, we finished up eight daybreak. We had to jump in that proverbial station wagon and drive down to, to Washington, D.C., because we had a show that next night. So we're, we're up in New York and took off. You know. but, but as far as the song itself goes, you know, he was a very gracious player. You know, uh, uh, you know, easy to look into his eyes, easy to play. There's no pretense, no, no nothing. I, you know, uh, just, just a good, warm human being who just was a marvelous musician. So t that, together with, with uh, Mitch Mitchell, who was, a, we had become buddies then. Uh, and really just hung out and talked a lot. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time together. Uh, we just hit it off and had fun, did the track, and, and it was great. And, and I really didn't think anything of it because uh, about, a, I don't know, we got back home from our tour a month later or something. It was in San Francisco. And we were rehearsing in the Fulton Street house that with this big old mansion that we had bought to use for offices and rehearsal halls. We were down in the basement and then, I got a phone call, and it was it was from uh, Jimmy Hendrix, and I said, "Hey, man, how are you doing?" And he says, "Listen, would you mind if we put that that uh, that cut we did?" I said, "What cut?" He said, "That long jam we did." I said, "I said that's that's got to be 15 minutes long. Are you nuts?" And he says, "I'm, I'm going to put out a double album, you know, and we can do it." And I said, "Fine, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm honored. It'd be cool." And the rest is history. <laughs> I, I read a quote from uh, Eddie Kramer that talked about uh, Jimmy's attitude towards sessions being a, a reasonably organized, even if it wasn't, um, you know. Absolutely. Even, yeah. Absolutely. So, and you know, I think you'll find anybody that that is good is organized. Yes. <laughs> uh, the The... Perception, the people's perception of you, it's taking drugs, smoke dope all the time, and doing all the night, you know, or uh, is is usually incorrect. You know, when when you get down to work, you you're organized. You know, there's a lot of distractions, but yes, absolutely. So when we went in to cut that song, you know, uh, uh, people have said that to me before too. Uh, uh, oh, you guys jammed? No, no. We're musicians. We listen to each other, and we played the changes and the song that was laid out in front of me. It wasn't a jam. It had <laughs> parts and things to remember to do, you know. Otherwise, it would sound like a jam, and you'd never hear it. <laughs> so he, you know, you'd clearly had a, a bit of history with him, and, you know, maybe it was happenstance that you ran into each other that night, but... Absolutely, you know. it was happenstance, and that would have happened. I mean, all that, yes, that's happenstance, you know. Uh, uh, but once you're in there holding your instrument, recording, you want to do the best you can because that's what we do. Of course, and and he must have had an inkling that there was something to be gained from you being there to to invite you to to play that. Particular well, like I said, we had played we had played some before, you know, and and we we gravitated to each other, and he'd listen to all my stuff, and I'd listen to all his stuff, and we had played on the same bill together. I had heard him many nights in a row. What was great about afterwards is that when he played Winterland or the while later or the Oakland Coliseum, I finally had a hook. You know, I had a I had a song that I recorded with him. We could play on stage along with Red House and a bunch of other stuff. That wasn't part of his, or you know, things that Noel Redding had played, you know. So, uh, you know, there's a shot of us playing together uh, at Winterland, or no, maybe it's Oakland Coliseum, and Noel's playing guitar, and I'm playing bass, you know. Uh, and and the, so the, the great thing about that was, yeah, I could be invited up on stage, and we had something solid to go into, you know, not and. Because nobody wanted to do a jam where you didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> Precisely, that's it. Doesn't it. mean you don't free flow or you don't you don't uh, you know uh, improvise it the best you can that night. And, and and but you've got to be hooked into that night. I mean, that's you're on stage. You want to do what you want to do. What you do as best you can. You of know? course, absolutely. Then uh, the 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 sort of final thing I I, I want to to speak to you about, which is um. I suppose it's a little bit selfish, but I've been listening to the the most recent Hot Tuner album, which was the uh, the 2011 uh, Steady As She Goes, and it was yeah. rec recorded at Levon Helm's studio. 
Right. I just wanted to. God bless Levon. Rest in peace. That's it. So I just want to ask Speaking you. Speaking of a great guy, Levon. What a drummer. What a singer. What a player. You know, uh, what a gracious gentleman he was. And he was good buddies with our. And he was. Uh, uh, I love Levon. And, but, and I, unfortunately, I never got to play with him more than a few times at, at, at uh, you know, uh, at festivals and things like that. Yeah. Was. Was that uh, why? Why that particular studio for that album? And uh, it was familiar. The Yorm had lived up there and knew a lot of those people in 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 Woodstock. He had lived in up in that area uh, of Woodstock for many years. So, uh, but uh, uh, Larry Campbell also worked out of there, our producer at the time. So. It was it was a good natural spot, and everybody felt they'd be comfortable to work there. And and of course, Levon was right there in the in the other room, you know, as part of the house and all of that. So, uh, uh, it 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 was a good, you know, a good choice to do, and we we enjoyed it. Cool. I I I said that was the last thing. I've I've turned my page of my notes now, and I've got. It's almost like a some. These are a bit more Q and A questions, I suppose. But um, yeah. one thing that. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is the sense of humor in all of the, like the Hot Tuna and the Jefferson Airplane stuff. There's obviously some of the song names or album titles that, I mean, I I, I have a feeling yeah, they know, may have come from you, but where 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 is it, these these you know calling it, it, an album burgers? Yeah, <laughs> but that's that's I think that's part of that part of that San Francisco scene, unlike. Say, shall we say in Los Angeles, where it's very hard for those guys to have humor about themselves. I won't mention who, but you know, most of us come from a pretty uh, varied background. You know, your man traveled the world. His father was in the State Department, so he brings a lot to the table. Uh, he's he's a writer. He's a crafter of words. He loves you. Listen to his lyrics. It isn't about Moon and June and Croon, and he's not just chasing women all the time and going, baby, 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 baby. <laughs> and I think uh, with that, as well as Grace has a terrific intellect, Paul Kantner did. And, you know, all of us, we, we enjoy a sense of humor, but you, having a sense of humor about yourselves. I mean, you're passionate about your craft or whatnot, but at the same time, you're watching this thing mushroom around you in the scene, things and, and people's interpretations of it and whatnot. And you got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, you know, we're all we're all along for a ride on this. Let's not let's not take ourselves in too too grand a manner here. <laughs> I mean, yes, you like you said earlier, Jimi Hendrix, very organized but very serious. What I'm doing that that doesn't mean. That that he took himself that the seriously in the way that some some people will do, you know. I think you you have to. It's a it's a matter of releasing some of the tension of things that are out of your control, you know. And there's things that are out of control that that put so much uh, stress on groups of people working together. I mean, it's an odd business, you know being in a band or working with people. It's the only art form, I think, where you go up, where, where you assemble together different people and you create an entity. I mean, you don't see six painters going up very often to the same canvas. No. You don't even see two piano players playing together very often. I mean, it's unique when they do it. You know, so it's an, it's an odd art, for, art form. I mean, we in the Jefferson Airplane, we were fortunate. If you were going to put a band together... A pro would never, you know, he pick more, you know, Paul coming out of the background of the weavers and folk music from then and vocal stuff like that. Yorma coming out of the guitar Piedmont single school of interpretation of blues and music, but at the same time having a worldview of music that he's traveled his whole life, very sophisticated. Uh, uh, all the influences that I've had uh, uh, Grace, uh, coming actually from a classical background, is why her 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 songs that she composed on the piano are so unique and interesting. You know, you you put all that together, and Marty Ballin, you know, was a 
was was had been doing pop songs in the, in 1962, you know, uh, on his own, you know. So, uh, and and loved to write and and craft his own own uh, songs. You put all that together, and the fun part of it, while it lasted for its seven years, was seeing what came out of it, you know, <laughs> and not necessarily. I mean, everybody wants to do a good job and, and, and try to do the best they can, but everybody involved was as surprised as anybody else about how something would turn out like that. So, you know, in Hot Tuna, Yorm and I work harder now than we ever have on stage. We listen harder than we ever have because we're always trying to get it that night. You're always trying to get it right. You know, in these last 50 weeks of his quarantine concert series that he posted from his Furpies Ranch, uh, stage, I visited him out there a few times. I'm about to go back out, as I said, for a, a month or so, and then we're going to do some shows finally after a year <laughs> of not playing in front of people. Uh, it's in its own way, it has has reset all of our playing and our goals, you know, uh, uh, and and we are more intense and work harder than we ever ever have than before. Why shouldn't you? It you know yesterday shouldn't be anything more than yesterday. I mean today and the future is is what's important. You know? Absolutely, I, I I think that's a, such a, a lovely way to look at it. And yeah, I agree with you completely. <laughs> um, do you? Well, so not looking to the future, looking back to the past. <laughs> what yes. do, you, do do you have any particular either? So either albums or moments in your career, I mean, you've had such a, musically speaking, it's been such a, a broad, eclectic mix of, of things you've done. But is there anything that, that maybe not necessarily just due down to success, but something that you're proud of because of perhaps the way it came together or the way it finished up? Or Well, you know, if, you, if I look back to the back, I was, I was working out this morning uh, and I... I, I you know, put my my uh, iTunes collection on, and just put it on a shuffle. You know, and and uh, and uh, uh, I'm listening to all kinds of varieties of music, and then and then a song comes off from uh, Surrealistic Pillow or something. <laughs> I didn't even recognize it. No, I'm just playing. It. Boy, that bass is kind of oh oh that song. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I'm. I'm I'm surprised how hard we all tried at such a young age, but then again, you know the bar has been raised so much. The so many young people are playing so much better now and more, uh, you know, with more articulation in a lot of ways. Uh, I I always have faith in in, in the young and young people coming around. So I I tend to not look at it as any favorite period of time. I'm really looking forward to next Tuesday getting in my Winnebago adventure and driving across country with one of my Tom Rebecca Jack basses. Uh, these these acoustic basses here. Oh wow, that's really cool. Yeah. This here, all of these I started uh, after my dear wife Diana passed away in 2012. I was just sitting here crushed. And I, I was playing one of my acoustic basses, and I said, you know, they really haven't done any science. They haven't done any work in acoustic bass guitars at all. They're really just a big jumbo guitar with four strings on it. So I, I found Tom Rebecca, actually, through one of my students, uh, who was making uh, instruments up in Healdsburg, California. And we got together, and we started making uh, a series of what's called Diana basses. Uh, to, for me to play in the acoustic configuration that Yorm and I play together so much. And we do a, 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 a more, more of that than electric. And I wanted a true acoustic guitar that would hold up across the room from Yorm's acoustic guitar and sound like a bass guitar, not like a baritone bass where you always wanted to plug it in. Uh, yeah. I wanted to work with an, a true acoustic instrument. And what I have here is...
The sustain's so, gorgeous on it. Yeah. So I, I've now got four of these instruments, uh, and we've been experimenting with that. But if you go on Tom Rebecki's site, R-I-B-B-E-C-K-E-E, um, um, you, we, we do a little video and a story about it and whatnot. But anyway, after you talk with, with Stacy Parrish, you know, after our interview and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, when you get your stuff together, you can get a lot more background about mm. some of the newer stuff I'm doing too. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I, I would like to, to just, I'd, I'd love you to speak about that now. So you, you mentioned that you've got an album coming out hopefully in the summer. Well, yeah, I, I mean, you know, and, and I don't talk about the pandemic in the album. <laughs> this album is uh it's all instrumental uh and i work with many great musicians on it uh, um uh daniel mason yair delal uh a uh, number of other musicians but it's a close intimate style where where i've recorded here both in los angeles and i i have my home and studio in jersey channel islands uh uh, in St. Martin. And so we've uh, recorded over the last three years and we're ready to put it out. So more will be revealed. <laughs> so three years in the making. Yeah. Um, okay, so just to... So hopefully by the time this goes out, I'll have a little bit more to say uh, on where people can find out about that or if they... Uh, yes, uh, after you talk to Stacey, we're, 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 we're finalizing and getting up to the marketing stage and how we're going to put it out and when it'll come out so yes Super. um lastly this is a, a question i ask everybody is if you were to give any advice to a young musician uh, or not necessarily even a young musician just somebody looking to to sort of make their way in music or or to create m music not even necessarily make a living out of it but just to to create what would your do you have a piece of advice that you that sort of springs to mind as as being prevalent stay true to yourself you know you you stay true to your beliefs and work within that as find the unique you you are unique everybody is unique Everybody is unique. There's nobody out there that's not unique. But <laughs> there are many people that that uh, get sidetracked uh, in in finding that uniqueness in yourself and manifesting it into an, an entity like a piece of music. And you have to work at it. Uh, I mean, we, we, you and I have worked millions of hours on our instruments you know and for him the, his vocals and his songwriting he reads he tells everybody if you want to write you must read you know you must improve your vocabulary you must expand your vocabulary so that you can express yourself more ways and more unique ways but but more accurately so you can find the way to get to the kernel of the truth, whether your finger's on the notes or whether you're writing it out on paper. So there we have it, Jack Cassidy. What a great guy. Uh, I just, I could have spoken to him all day. I, it was a, such a, an honor to have that conversation. I really hope that you enjoyed listening to that. Jack's got some really exciting stuff happening. So if you do not follow him on socials, he's on Facebook, he's on Instagram, and you can check out his website and I'll put links to all these things in the show notes. He uh, wouldn't tell me too much about what's going on, but there's some cool stuff happening towards the summer um, and beyond. Um, and hopefully I'll be involved in publicizing that uh, through this podcast in some capacity so hopefully there'll be more to come from jack in the in the future um yeah I, i'm just astounded I, I, it's such a an amazing conversation to have had and to have some to speak to somebody who's had those experiences is, is unbelievable and uh he stayed so humble and just his love of music and his passion for music is so clear 
Um, so, uh, the next episodes next week, I am speaking with Ivana Manley from Manley Laboratories, which if any of you are gearheads, you'll know who that is and what Manley Laboratories is. Manley is an uh, outboard gear company who specialise in valve technology, which is why I was interested to speak to Ivana. Um, and she heads the company and started out sort of doing bits and bobs at the company before ending up running it. <laughs> She's one of the most inspirational people I've ever spoken to. I, I, uh, yeah, she was, she's amazing. And I, you'll absolutely enjoy this episode. Um, she talks about all of the history of Manly. She talks about some, uh, sort of technical things to do with valve technology. Um, and we talk about some of the pieces of gear that made Manly a, sort of modern classic in terms of outboard gear so yeah you'll really enjoy that so that's coming next week um so that just leaves me to say if you want to get in touch with me you can do that it, my email address is joe at all you need is drums.com you can visit my website which is www.allyouneedisdrums.com uh, and if you want to support the podcast by buying a mug you can do that at the shop section of my website uh, and uh, that's it feel free to get in touch I, I always enjoy hearing from people and I love hearing your suggestions so that just leaves me to say a huge thank you to my good friend Joe Kane for the intro and outro music he supplies for this podcast and my other good friend uh, David Henshaw for the artwork that he supplies uh, every week now um, so yeah have a fantastic week and I will speak to you next Tuesday goodbye goodbye